Thank you for joining us for the third episode of Sound the Foghorn, Fansided's official San Francisco Giants podcast. I am your host, Mark DeLuke, and today we are joined by one of my favorite baseball writers, Melissa Lockhart. She works as a staff writer and editor at the Athletic Bay Area, where she produces great Giants and Ace content with a particular focus on the organization's farm systems. Make sure to follow Melissa on Twitter at Melissa Lockhart. And if you aren't already an Athletic subscriber and have the means, I highly recommend it. Melissa, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. No problem. I'm really excited to have you on. You were on uh, my friend Roger Munter's podcast a couple weeks ago when you had the instructional league rosters come out. And I was worried because I was like, oh, he got you with the good scoop. But then you <laughs> had an interview with Kyle Haynes this week. And I was very excited that we're going to get to talk about that. But before we sort of dive into the nitty gritty of the Giants, you know, obviously this has been a year where everyone's plans have been shaken up and you've had everyone's had to adjust i'm just curious for you how did you adapt you know you're covering the games and you're covering baseball but there weren't minor league games being played and that's obviously an area where your coverage is most focused so sort of how did you kind of feel about the process of you know talking about prospects this year and um, what was that like for you yeah, it, it was not easy. I mean, um, you know, when the whole game was shut down, um, it was really tough. We did a lot of kind of historical look back pieces, um, speculation pieces. We actually ran a um, OOTP simulation league where, um, you know, we did kind of weekly check ins as to, uh, you know, what the different teams were doing. Um, so it was a lot of that kind of content, um, which, you know, is, is fine and fun for a while. And after about a month or so of it, it, it it definitely stretches your creative uh, abilities a little bit. Um, once the season started and, you know, there was some uh, prospect talk, especially around the alternate group, we you know we were able to dive into that a little bit. But of course, teams were really kind of um, real focused on what they were going to let people know about what was going on in those groups. So, you know, we had a little bit of touch base things, but uh, even though I live not far from um, both the Giants and the A's alternate sites, uh, there was, you know, no access to being able to go and see it yourself. And, uh, you know, a lot of what I love to do um, with my coverage is is go and just, you know, hang out um, before the game on the field and, um, you know, talk to coaches and players as they're getting ready for, for games. And, and usually that's where you kind of get your best stuff. So uh, a lot of working the phones and kind of trusting the information that you get from people over the phone. Um, you know, and then in, once Instructional League was announced, it, you know, at least there was then a bigger group of people that we could talk about. And we could also sort of start to see uh, a little bit, you know, who are the priority, at least younger prospects for uh, the different organizations. And that's always interesting as well. Yeah, definitely. And so, you know, now that we have some actual games going on, it is kind of weird because, you know, most teams, I think the Mariners are right putting out box scores, but pretty much everyone else is shut out of tracking them. Um, but you published an interview this week over at The Athletic um, with Giants Farm Director Kyle Haynes. Obviously a bunch of prospect-focused questions. That's his job. What were the most important takeaways from you for you, though, from that conversation? 
Well, I mean, I think, you know, for one, the fact that it's it's going along um, is a good thing. I mean, I think even when they probably approved this process, I think there was some trepidation as to how much um, they were going to be able to do, how well they were going to be able to keep it moving forward. I think I've heard there were a couple of camps um, that had some COVID outbreaks and some sense that they might have to shut down. It doesn't sound like that. The Giants have had that issue yet. Um, I think, you know, one thing I, I was struck by that I don't think was included when, with the article I wrote was uh, Kyle Haynes definitely sounded pretty tired. And, and I think um, one thing to, you know, keep in mind for these farm directors, it's, it's a hard job anyway. And this year might have been the hardest job uh, they've ever had. I mean, they've had to not only be at the alternate sites and now at these instructional league bubbles. So, you know, like he said, he hasn't seen his family in four months, but um, then also, you know, they're dealing with also trying to keep development going for players that aren't there, you know, because there still are quite a few players that they're keeping track of. Like he was talking about Sean Jelly and the kind of work that he was able to do uh, at home and what their plans were for him and why he wasn't included in this group. Um, You know, so there's a lot of tracking that he's not even able to see with his own eyes, which I'm sure is very different. Um, but, you know, I think that the fact that uh, they had some of their younger guys at the alternate site, like Marco Luciano, and those guys have been able to come into this instructional league and really be sort of leaders of the younger kids, um, I think has been, you know, a really um, important theme for the Giants. I think that's a that's a group. You, you kind of like to look at um, bubbles of players or kind of um, core groups of players that come up together. And if they arrive together, I think, you know, you like you saw with the Giants in, in the early 2010s, you know, um, a lot of good things can happen. And, and there sort of seems to be a little bit of a bubble of, of players that are coming up together now that went through this experience together at the alternate site and now in this instructional league and are going to be able to carry that on as they move up um, the ranks. And I think that's going to be a real strength for the Giants as they move forward. Yeah, I hadn't really thought of, I mean, obviously I understood the challenges from a farm director standpoint and just, you know, when you don't have even an instructional league, right, you're putting out these workout programs. You know, I did a number of profile pieces on minor league players and it was like, yeah, we're doing Skype interviews, we're getting workout plans. And I imagine you're trying to kind of curtail that as much as you can. But I hadn't really thought necessarily like the evaluation side of it, right? Like normally he's talking about, oh, this guy's doing really well. Hi, we should send, you know, I think he's ready for the Richmond challenge or this player's, you know, struggling a bit at Augusta. Maybe we should give him a chance to go back to Salem Kaiser for a bit. You know, normally we're figuring out what level these guys belong at, how close they are based on how they're playing at these levels. But we really lost that this year, you know, and so not just a developmental standpoint, but straight up in evaluative standpoint I hadn't you know for the teams themselves yeah and I think uh pitching is probably where you're going to see the biggest um kind of gap in that you know there uh when he was sort of talking about the pitchers and and they're only going to get up to two innings maybe now there's some of them are starting to stretch out to three but um you know there's not so much you can really put on pitchers in a camp like this when they haven't had a regular workload during the summer and you know they have to be careful and and so you know usually instructional league um comes either right at the end of a long season or in the case of what the Giants did last year and having it in January. It's after the offseason. They've had their offseason program. They're fresh and they're ready to move into a new season. Um, so there's sort of 
you know, steps of improvement that you can see. They might add a pitch. They might, you know, do some sort of different change with the grip or whatever. In this camp, I got the sense that right now, really, their main focus is just getting guys out on the field and getting them repetitions. They may start to tweak a little bit of stuff towards the end of camp, but it's less of a kind of um, let's figure this out and learn some new things instructionally than it is more of a let's get repetitions and make sure we're ready for next season instructionally, which is it's different than what instructionally tends to be normally. Um, so that I think it was one of the things I, I hadn't really thought about until I talked to him, but it, it does make sense that you, you've got to really guard against trying to put too much on players that didn't have, you know, full seasons uh, under their belt. And you don't want to put somebody in an injury situation and, you know, have them, um, you know, lose an, another year after a situation where they didn't get a chance to play a lot this year. So um, there's a lot of that balance going on, I think, right now, too. I am curious, this is kind of a tangential point but obviously we're both people who try to interact with the content that we can get about minor league baseball and you know a lot of people have made the point you know there's a lot of people out there who would have paid some nominal amount of money for streams of these games you know there's probably even a market for just box scores or you know exit velocities or consistent stats and I'm curious from your perspective if you have an idea of sort of what went into sort of frankly, closing fans out of a lot of this process. I mean, yesterday, you know, I, I wrote an article that was just like three guys who'd posted their home run highlights on their Instagram story. And like, that's about all we've gotten aside from, you know, when you're having conversations with people. I, I Do you have, you know, I guess part of the concern for me is as, you know, we know the backdrop of this is major league and minor league baseball and they're, you know, frankly nasty, but negotiations are pretty much, going to lead the leagues it looks like to move under the MLB umbrella sort of the last iteration of that and you know they've talked about one baseball and that you know they have the access that's what MILB TV has done in the past and expanded it we've seen more consistently with box scores and coverage and the like but at the same time this is kind of something that's really under the MLB umbrella right this has nothing to do with minor league baseball and I guess my concern is, you know, when you're looking at this and you're seeing the level of access, do you think this is something that, you know, obviously maybe not at the, you know, AAA or AA's where these games are going to hopefully, or they're, the league is hoping to have fans, but at the lower levels that this could be sort of something that's kind of becomes more of the norm where pe- people are kind of shut out from that process? Um, I don't think necessarily. I, I, I think... My guess is that the organizations that have really focused on putting a lot of of this information out either had kind of people in their minor league um, operations that were already doing this. Like I look at the Brewers, you know, they have a a Twitter account that comes from their minor league operations side that already was sort of tweeting out um, information and video during a normal minor league season um, or teams like the Mariners. And I think the Tigers are another one that seems to be putting out a lot of information that have a lot riding on fans getting very invested in the fact that these young players are coming up and sort of turning the tide from what has been a pretty, you know, uh, kind of disastrous last few years for those organizations. So I think they, as organizations, put PR resources towards this that maybe the Giants and the A's and some of these other organizations that haven't just didn't feel the need to to put money towards. I think um, they don't have people in Arizona full time that do PR. So there wasn't someone on the ground anyway. I do get the sense there's some 
there was some proprietary kind of information that team some teams felt they wanted to hold on to with the alternate sites. And so, you know, whereas the Red Sox, for, you know, whatever reason, again, another organization was probably trying to save face a little bit after everything that happened during the offseason, you know, they were literally streaming their games on NESN at the alternate site. You know, a lot of organizations were completely keeping that information as much as they could to themselves. Um, and, you know, for whatever reason, they felt that that was a strategic, you know, um, advantage. And, you know, my guess is the strategic advantage aspect of it was limited to this very strange sort of setup that we have right now. MILB TV was hoping to roll out full video games of even down to the A-ball level this year. I don't know that they were going to go into short season or rookie ball, but they were definitely getting set up to do it in the Cal League. And I think they were probably going to start moving into all the ballparks and Midwest and um, South Atlantic League. So um, I think that's where the movement was going. And I think it'll continue under this new umbrella. The kind of reorganization, I think, is more about streamlining the number of players that they have in the pipeline and, you know, and less about sort of keeping access um, away from fans. Because I think they do get that the more information fans get about younger players in general, it gets them more excited about going to big league games. Yeah, and I guess I, that probably also speaks to just attention that kind of is present, right, as we have these equity trader background front offices, but right, really like exploiting sort of every informational advantage, right? Like they are, yeah. you know, kind of built on that where the league itself is obviously interested in marketing the game and marketing its prospects. So it makes sense that I guess in this year, right, where that sort of authorial control is in the teams, in the organization's hands, it's going to be a bit more behind closed doors than in the future when obviously the league will ultimately have final say. Yeah, I think so. And the teams themselves, you know, will still be owned by whoever owns them. So some of them are going to be owned by big league teams. But, uh, you know, some of these affiliates are still going to remain under the ownership groups of the people that ran them before. So they're still going to have every business reason to continue to have that access. Really good point. So switching to sort of Giants prospects, we're going to give this little game an experiment here. I'm not sure how to play out, but I think it's worth a shot because I do think it is difficult as someone who dedicates a lot of time to prospects and to the draft is that it's kind of hard for fans to compare prospects already in the system with players who are coming in via the draft. So I basically uh, tried to sort of create a little game for that. And the premise is essentially I'm going to name a prospect in the giant system and say you are forced to trade them, but you can only get one type of assets in return, like a draft picks in an average draft. So, you know, the, biggest prospect or probably most valuable prospect they have right if i said joey bart i'd probably say that bart might be worth the first overall pick and a mid second rounder you know 45th overall people some people might argue it's too high others might argue it's too low and again the problem with the first overall pick is depends if you have a harper like prospect but with that kind of exception in an average year i think it's bart's probably worth both the first and 45th um so does that kind of premise makes sense mm-hmm. yeah awesome all right so first one i'm going to give you not quite necessary to bart's stature but probably one of the closer prospects in the giant system elliot ramos yeah i mean i think he's definitely worth more than the spot he was selected at uh for sure so um you know i i would probably say you could get a, a top 10 pick maybe a number eight overall pick and a compensation round pick for him okay yeah i think that's that's probably fair. And again, that sort of, I think, is also worth noting, right? With like a first round pick, 
even as they stay on the trajectory, if as the longer they stay on trajectory, which Ramos is probably slightly outpaced to being on pace, you know, that value increases, even if it's the same kind of ceiling we're looking at, because they're getting closer to achieving it. Right. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. So pitching side, um, you mentioned him um, in your interview with Kyle Haynes and, and whatnot. He's not in instructional league because the team seems high or the, the developmental staff, I should say, seems high on the possibility he'll be in spring training in a few months. Um, Sean Jelly. Yeah, um, you know, I think he's probably uh, like a mid first round and a third round pick now. I think, um, you know, there's a very good chance that he makes the rotation at some point in 2021. And, um, you know, if he ends up settling in as a kind of number four starter, that's certainly that value right there. Mm-hmm. Now I'm going to give Roger Munter, I know he's high on Kaiway Tang, so I'm curious. <laughs> You know, because I think, you know, the top of the, the organization, obviously, that sort of tries to sort of expose that, like, you know, some of these guys, they're worth, you know, multiple picks high up in the draft. And, you know, top prospects aren't really you can't it's hard to equivalent them in the draft. Right. Like there's a reason Patrick Bailey's not coming in and ranking number two or number three in the Giants system. But sort of for, for the fringes guys, like again, like a Kaiway Tang, you know, where would you put him in that? Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, I mean, I, I think you could probably get maybe a pair of third round picks or one second round pick for him. You know, he's someone, again, who I think has that sort of solid floor that you maybe look for in those rounds. His ceiling might not be like first round ceiling, but the floor is there to be able to do that. But there's still some risk, obviously, between where he is now and where you're going to get um, to the point that he's in the big league. Mm-hmm. And sort of kind of, I think, a not too dissimilar prospect kind of on the hitting side, a guy with, you know, not necessarily the biggest, most exciting tools, but someone who's definitely got an interesting profile and really built an aim for himself in the past couple of seasons is Sean Roby. Yeah, I would say... I would say you could get a either a comp round pick or a second round and a fifth round pick for him. I think he's he's definitely shown his the the ability to hit for average. I think that the power is starting to come there for him. And if you get that power and and um, to go get into whatever you know what always is what already is a really good hit tool, um, that that's a player that has a lot of value. He's on the younger side for where he's been um, so far. So uh, you know I think there's good projectability there. And he's the kind of guy maybe that if he had been in the draft would have been one of those kind of uh, comp round or, or third round picks that goes above slot, you know, that, that, that kind mm-hmm. of prospect. So um, that's maybe where I'd put, put with him. Awesome. Thank you for playing around fans, <laughs> uh, fans listeners uh, comment. What, what do you think about that segment? I think I might give it a shot um, going forward, but thank you for playing along with that first one. So, you know, switching gears to the big league side of things where, you know, for better or worse, most fans are interested. What do you expect to see from the Giants this offseason? It's going to be an interesting offseason. I think it's hard to know where any organization is going to be financially. Um, and I think the Giants are, are a team that if they are using their normal uh, financial heft, have some opportunities to do some big things. But I'm not sure any 
team is going to use financial heft. Um, you know, and the fact that the Giants, like I think almost every organization so far, you know, made significant staff layoffs is, um, you know, a sign that teams are not necessarily going to be going out there and throwing around a lot of money. So, you know, they have some obvious decisions to make about their starting rotation and, you know, investments they would have to make financially there to either bring some of those guys back or go after some of the guys that are on the market. It'd be interesting to see if they try to go after someone like a Trevor Bauer, if they feel like the market is is to the point where that would be a competitive ability to get someone in for maybe a price that they wouldn't have been able to get him in before. I think there aren't too many pitchers that are worth that kind of contract. Um, he might be one, certainly basically based on what he did in the National League this year. I think, you know, they'd feel pretty good about what they would see there. But, um, you know, beyond Bauer, I'm not sure that there's necessarily a marquee free agent that they would go after but i think i'd expect them to be pretty busy you know yeah working the margins finding veterans that maybe are willing to do that one-year deal like they did coming into this season that they got a lot of value out of Mm -hmm. and uh, i imagine too as a lot of people expect to we're going to see just a lot of non-tenders as well so we're also looking at this free agent market and there's probably going to be a surprising number of guys probably a few with some big league track records as well that we aren't even able to think about right now that are going to catch some people off guard too. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's going to be a a hugely wide open free agent market. And the real question is, is it a free agent market where there's a flurry of activity from the very beginning, or is it going to be one of those years where we don't see any of these guys really getting much movement until basically spring training is about to start? And, you know, who knows exactly when spring training is going to start? I mean, I think there's still some question about that too. So, you know, it's, it's really difficult to know where teams are going to be at. I mean, you kind of look at like, the, the landscape, normally you sort of judge it based on maybe what the Yankees and the Red Sox are going to do. And it doesn't look like either of those teams are necessarily going to be out there, you know, kind of fishing in the big pond. So that really leaves it wide open for organizations to do a lot if they want to. Um, and so the Giants have opportunities if they want to spend. But again, I'm not sure, you know, what financial uh, kind of flexibility any of these organizations are going to have this offseason. Yeah, it is sort of interesting to consider, right? Because because a, a lot of even a few, few, like you mentioned, big market teams aren't going to, you know, the richer teams, uh, a number of them are going to be less involved. You know, the more that happens, the more opportunity there is for another team to take advantage of that and actually try to kind of go on a spending binge. But, you know, with the factors in play, obviously, you know, foregone revenues in terms of the team business, who knows what ownerships other investments are, you know, the in basketball, right? The Houston Rockets are the perfect example with Tillman Fertitta, whose investments in hotels and restaurants, right? He's hurting all around. And there are obviously going to be opportunities. There are also probably going to be a lot of people wanting to kind of hold back. And there is also kind of the elephant in the room of the incoming labor dispute, right? With the expiration of the CBA after next year. And so there is a certain, I would imagine, you know, not necessarily explicit, but at least implicit suggestion from you know the commissioner's office and people in ownership too trying to kind of gain leverage going into those negotiations and that probably means a quieter winter especially for that top tier free agent yeah i think the word maybe you were thinking of is collusion (laughs) we might be back to 87 yeah i mean i think 
that certainly looms over. And and as I said, you know, one of the things the Giants did really well this last offseason was signing those one-year veteran contracts um, and getting some really good value out, out of some of the guys that they brought in that way. And that may be what the landscape ends up being for, you know, a good number of teams. And I think the Giants have shown they can make some pretty good decisions in that area. So if it ends up being that the market is sort of more focused on one-year deals, that could end up being a pretty good advantage for them. With that, I mean, obviously, again, they could go out and sign a Marcus Stroman and sign a George Springer, and that's all changes this. But assuming kind of status quo, how do you see this team moving towards competitiveness? Because I'm really high on this farm system. I really like a lot of these prospects. I really like even what they've started doing at the big league level, acquiring talent. But I also like the Padres and like the Dodgers when you look at that talent quite a bit more. And so that's kind of something that, to contextualize it, right? Like I think in any other division, I'd be pretty high on the Giants hopes in next year to kind of make a push for the wild card or division in a normal playoff format. And then potentially the year after that, looking at the division, but how do you see this team moving towards competitiveness? Yeah. I mean, I think one thing that in my past dealings, you know, with Farhan Zaidi, I think his focus has always been on the team he's building and less on the teams they're competing against. So um, I, I mean, my guess is that, well, of course, you have to be aware of the fact that the Padres and the Dodgers have good rosters, and certainly you're going to play them, you know, a lot. Um, so there's some sense of trying to match up against them. I think how you kind of focus your development and worry about what your team is coming together as, uh, you know, isn't distracted by the fact that those teams might also be good. I think you kind of always have to assume a little bit that teams that you're going up against are going to have to be good. I mean, and in, in looking, um, you know, from where he came from, you know, with even with the A's, you know, back in the days when he was building those teams in the, you know, like 2012 through 14, if you had said in 2011, this was a team that was going to be able to, you know, leap over the Angels and the Rangers, and, and those were really stacked teams, not only at the big league level, but they seemed to have a lot of farm system guys that were coming up that were going to make a big impact. Um, I don't think people would have really thought that that was possible, but what they focused on was building the best roster they could, and they sort of let the chips fall where they may. And I think a lot of times in baseball, that ends up working out just fine. So, yeah, so I, I think I wouldn't worry too much about what the Padres and the Dodgers are doing. You know, eventually teams just have to prove they're the best team. And I think that, you know, what the Giants have really kind of done well is re rebalance and recalibrate the organization so that there is talent coming up while also building a big league roster. I think those two had gotten a little bit out of sync, you know, in, in the previous regime, just, you know, by virtue of the fact that they had been good for so long, you know, they had to pull a lot out of their minor league resources to be able to maintain that. So now that that balance is more in place, and I think they saw some success at the big league level this year, you can start to actually project where some of that talent can go either on the big league field or to acquire the big league pieces that you need to be competitive too. So I think they're in a good, you know, I think they're in good shape. I think if you're, you know, using like a poker analogy, they've got a good hand that they can play. They don't know if the hands that the Dodgers and the Padres have mm. are better, but they still have a good hand that that is usable. Whereas I'd say maybe two years ago, they're looking at a hand that's going to be a total bust regardless. So, so that's where I think they can be optimistic about it. You know, again, it, it's always difficult because as much as you want to project 
what you know teams are going to be able to do there's always going to be a brandon wood there's always going to be you know a Derek barton somebody that you're sure is going to be great and then they turn out not to be and even in looking at the padres i mean you know they had a really nice year in this weird sort of setup but you know how many times have we said oh now the padres are ready to roll in the last five or six years i mean i think they've had plenty of, of times where it seemed like they were building up towards something and then it didn't quite get there. So, you know, we'll, we just will have to kind of wait and see where those guys go. But um, but I think the Giants should be really in a good spot. I think, you know, Elliot Ramos is somebody that is close to getting into that outfield mix. And I think between, you know, him and Mike Ustremski, that's the start of building a really solid outfield. You know, you mentioned George Springer. Maybe that is the other murky free agent they look at. But I think they're in position now at least to be able to think about oh, these are finishing touches, pieces we can make to putting together a good big league team, which is way different than where they were two years ago. I think the poker analogy is a really good one because I think that's sort of where I look at it. It's like compared to most teams in the league, I feel quite confident. It's just, you know, you got to kind of, right, the Satchel Page quote, right, don't look back, something might be gaining on you, right? Like right. ultimately you can control what you're doing. And, and yeah, the, the Giants have recalibrated this nicely because I, I don't think, a year, even frankly, coming into this season, I felt very strongly that they had pieces at the big league level that, you know, you're going to say, all right, this can be a, you know, we have a few everyday players who went as the prospects kind of trickle in, um, can work alongside. And that changed this year. I mean, really pretty much you saw every veteran, you know, with the, probably the exception of Sandoval and Pence, but one who's been on the giants and consistently for the past few years, right? Longoria, Crawford, belt all had resurgent seasons and i think there probably is a part of that right these are guys who struggle with injuries and you had a long layoff in a shortened year but also what for whatever reason it is going forward that's something more to build on than you thought coming in right absolutely yeah and um you know and i think too if you you can look at the fact that we don't know what's going to happen with expanded playoffs but if expanded playoffs happen i think you can kind of almost disregard the That's idea true. that the dodgers and padres are you know maybe have more talent because once you get into that short tournament you know any team can win so um yeah if it ends up turning into more of an nba type setup where you just need to get through the regular season yeah. as opposed to worrying about winning your division then, um, you know, I think the Giants are in very good shape. But um, no, you're right. I mean, I think what they saw from especially Crawford and Belt, I think, should be very encouraging because it's not like those guys are, you know, 38 or 39. I mean, they're Mm -hmm. still within that range of this can be a sustainable type level of production for, you know, at least a couple more years. And um, yeah, I think I think that's a, a very good sign for them to build on because also, too, you know, you're not having to rush anybody to try to replace those guys at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And so kind of speaking along the lines of those older guys, I'm going to shuffle things a bit. Because, and this is a question purely for my own self-interest. But do you see the A's offering Marcus Simeon a qualifying offer? And what do you expect his free agent market to look like? Yeah, I mean, that I've I've gone back and forth on that. Um it's tough. I mean, I actually have a piece that'll come out next week. I'm, I'm splitting up the grading um, of the different A's position groups with Alex Coffey and um, based on some, a similar thing that Grant Brisby is doing on the Giants side. But, um, you know, my latest one will be on, um, on Simeon. And, you know, one of the things I touch on is how of all the players in baseball, he may have been the most financially impacted by this um, pandemic. And, you know, he lost his biggest payday. Uh, he was supposed to make 13 million this year. He only made 
uh, 4.81, which is, you know, a huge difference when you look at the, the amount of money he'd made up to this point. And he would have been, you know, in line for, I think, a very significant four-year deal or something like that in a normal year. But he had a down year, um, I think, maybe in part because the, the protocols made it difficult for pregame preparation. And he is one of the most meticulous with pregame routines. But Whatever it was, he was off for a little while, but then in the postseason, you kind of saw what impact he can still have. So I think it depends on our team's going to look at, you know, what a 53 game sample from the regular season and say, you know, this is a guy that had one great year in 2019, but is just an average player, or look at that postseason and, you know, say, hey, you know what, this guy is still an above average shortstop. Um, that we can, you know, build around for the next few years. I don't know. It, it's really hard to know. Um, that qualifying offer, the A's have never made one, I don't think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was trying to think back. Um, I don't believe they've ever made one. Um, if they were going to make one, you know, he'd be the guy. They would probably do it. You know, he's an important part of everything they do. They don't have anyone to replace him next year. If he took it, it would certainly make they're, you know, bridging over to maybe a Nick Allen a lot easier, but I don't know that they're going to be willing to take on 18 million in Mm -hmm. in one year contract. Um, So I don't know. Uh, My, my guess would be it's probably 70, 30, they won't, um, but there's a chance, I guess, that they do. And in terms of his free agent market, you know, I think where that four-year theoretical deal may have been out there before, my guess is that he's one of these guys that might have to settle for more one of these two-year deals, or maybe he goes and gets a one-year deal to prove it and try to get a better market next year. But um, yeah, I think it's not a great market for any of these marquee free agents, except maybe a Bauer or a Springer. Um, And unfortunately, I think Marcus is going to be pretty heavily impacted by it. Yeah. And, you know, I wrote a piece this this week or last week on Around the Foghorn about, you know, why I think Simeon could actually be a really strong fit with the Giants if, you know, frankly, his market doesn't develop as I think it should, because the one thing is ultimately last year does kind of stand out as sort of this exceptional year. He's had very good years. He's been a solid to very good starter, you know, for a number of years now in Oakland, but teams I think are going to also be skittish about, well, are we paying for that one year? Like, is that one year something we're going to see going forward or is he just a solid guy? So I think it's also going to be interesting how his market developed, but also, what kind of contract structures we see, because I think he's sort of the perfect example of someone who, you know, maybe a team goes, all right, we'll take a, you know, one year and 10, $12 million flyer. And, but he's going to probably want a bit more stability. Maybe we see something where a team kind of puts a balloon kind of package in a one-year deal with an opt-out, but, or a three-year deal with an opt-out after the first year, but you see sort of a significant decline in the average salary, right? So it goes from like a 13 million to a, seven million for two years after that so that way for Simeon there's sort of some security maybe he can get some more guarantees but then for you know if he does he gets sort of one more chance to try to rebuild his value going into the next offseason but yeah I mean again if you know I've talked to a few agents and it's you know a lot of uncertainty and you know really throughout the tier right whether you're looking at minor league free agents or you're looking at you know someone like Simeon who's frankly probably one of the three or four biggest names and you know best reputations of anyone out there it's so much is sort of uncertain and there's going to be so much shuffling around you just worry about there's always probably going to be someone else who could hypothetically fill your spot 
because there's going to be so many players available. And that just makes it so much more difficult from a player standpoint. Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely, I think that's, that's going to be tough. Um, and, uh, you know, if you're looking at contracts that are in the 13 million range, I think, you know, a team like Lake the A's is much more competitive than to maybe bring him back. Um, I think his preference would be to stay in the Bay Area. So I think both the A's and Giants have a better chance of, of getting him on a smaller contract than another organization would. Um, if you're looking at A's free agents is one that might be a fit for the Giants. Um, you know, I, I mean, I think Liam Hendricks is certainly somebody that that could mm-hmm. fit in. I know the Giants have been very resistant to the idea of, quote unquote, a closer. But uh, I think somebody like Hendricks would be maybe worth breaking that mold for. Another one to maybe keep in the back of mind is um, Robbie Grossman. I think he sort of fits a lot of what they try to do. Uh, switch hitter, um, ability to play, you know, all three of those outfield positions. And, you know, has shown an, it showed an uptick in power when kind of adjusted his launch angle this year. Um, and, and he's not going to cost a lot of money, I wouldn't think. But um, as they try to kind of build their outfield on the margins, he might be a guy they, they have some interest in. Yeah, I also even when the before the power showed up, Grossman's always been a guy who gets on base and works counts, mm-hmm. and that's clearly been a focus. And last question before I let you go, I'm curious. You know, you obviously cover you know Giants. You also cover the A's, and you know you're watching obviously a lot of teams and seeing sort of the tendencies when it comes to prospect evaluation, roster building. If I gave you a, a slight promotion to the president of baseball operations for the Giants. <laughs> Is there a preference or tendency that you've noticed with this f- current front office in terms of team building or prospect selection or anything that you think is one that you would go away from? That just sort of personally, when you look at a prospect or you look at a roster, you would approach from the opposite perspective is where they do. I mean, I don't know that it's specific to the Giants, but um, I think that in general, the game is not doing a good enough job developing starters. And I think you're seeing that um, in this postseason in particular. And I get that this sort of, you know, big bullpen arm thing is is very, you know, kind of chic right now and trendy. But um, ultimately, I think what you start to see is that fraying that comes when you have bullpens that um, are relied on so much more heavily. I think, you know, the Giants this year are a good example of a team that would have made the postseason, I think, had not so much been put on their bullpen because their bullpen wasn't really ready to take it, (laughs) if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, And they weren't in a position necessarily to have developed starters to bring into their rotation yet. But um, I think the development of starting pitching has really changed a lot in the last, I don't know, five or six years as compared to, you know, when I started covering minor league baseball back in the early 2000s. And um, there's just a lot of less, there's a lot less emphasis on length. Um, there's a lot less emphasis on, you know, really perfecting your whole uh, repertoire before you get to the big leagues. And you're seeing a lot of unfinished products being thrown into rotations and then people assuming they can't get through three times through a rotate uh, through a, a lineup because they're not good enough. But I would argue they would have been good enough had they been developed a little more. So that that's where I think the game in general from a development standpoint is kind of taken a step back. And, um, you know, I'd like to see teams just all over the place, not just, you know, specifically with the Giants, really focusing on getting more traditional starting pitching built back up again. Because I do think that you can't have 162 games seasons where your bullpen is doing this all the time. You know, maybe that worked in a 60-game season, but 162 games, you, you need starting pitching. And that that's where I see 
development kind of falling off right now. Definitely. Well, that's Melissa Lockard. You can find her work over at the Athletic Bay Area. Again, you can follow her on Twitter at Melissa Lockard. Um, thank you um, for joining us. I know PG&E is going to cause some problems for you later. So um, <laughs> I, I appreciate you um, taking the time to have this conversation. Anything else you want you want to mention? No, that's, that's great. You find us over at The Athletic. And uh, there's a, f- a number of good deals right now if you haven't signed up for a subscription where you can get it at a pretty cheap cost. So um, look for those deals on the website if you go to theathletic.com. Awesome. Well, thank you to everyone uh, for listening. This has been the third episode of Sound the Foghorn. You can stay up to date with all SF Giants news at aroundthefoghorn.com. Follow us on Twitter at roundthefoghorn. I'm your host, Mark Lukey. You can follow me on Twitter at madlukey. That's M-A-D-D-E-L-U-C-C-H-I. Thank you. Like, subscribe, comment your thoughts. Five stars only, though. Um, <laughs> have a wonderful week. Thank you guys for tuning in.